Let's return to our Wednesday night series through the book of Esther by going to Esther chapter 3. I hope you are enjoying the series as much as I am so far. And while you're finding your place, I just want to tell you that I'm thankful you're here tonight. Thank you for being faithful. I've heard some pastors say, well, the pastor shouldn't tell the folks, thank you for being faithful to church. They should do that anyway. Well, I'm very thankful you're here. And I want to encourage you, remain anchored. Remain anchored in the church. This church body. On Sunday mornings, I sometimes will say, I'm glad you chose to be with us because there's so many options you have in Rapid City. And you can't say that on Wednesday nights anymore. I mean, the midweek prayer and Bible study meeting is disappearing. And if it does exist, they've chopped it up into small groups. But I believe the Bible is still in favor of corporate prayer meetings. So I'm encouraged you're here that you're placing a high priority on your midweek service. Don't allow the worldly activities of the world to crowd church out. Church should not revolve around your life, but your life should revolve around the church. God purposefully set the tabernacle up in the very center of the camp of Israel. There's a lesson in that. Esther chapter 3, let's read verses 1 through 10 again this week. And after these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants which were in the king's gate said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matter would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast her, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the Jews' enemy. So last week our our focus was introducing Haman the Agagite. I cannot prove it definitively, but I'm currently of the opinion that this means he he was a descendant of the kingly line of the Amalekites, whose title was Agag. And I believe we are told that this information as a reminder 
of Saul's disobedience in obeying God and utterly destroying the Amalekites five centuries earlier, which God said He was going to do all the way back in Exodus 17. And remember that it also appears from Esther 2.5 that Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul. And so it's very interesting that we have these two genealogies, these two lineages intersecting again, and they're still battling because of Saul's disobedience. And the challenge for us is that we would stay and remain obedient to God because the decisions we make in our lifetime might have a lasting impact on our heritage, on our genealogy, those who come after us. And and we need to consider that because we can affect things both good and bad. Here in Esther, it appears one man's disobedience 555 years earlier or so has led to a planned extermination of all the Jews by an Agagite. Now, everyone has a free will, amen? And and you'll make a decision as God uh, works in your life and and you're responsible for your own decision. However, I, I think we can make the case that if we live in obedience to God, that we can help those who come after us to make a godly decision that will lead to a life that is pleasing to God. I think we can help set the stage for that by how we raise our children and and conduct our own lives. And it could be that um, God wants you to be the chain breaker, like we heard at Silver State, to break the chain of something bad or maybe start the chain of something good that your family uh, might be set up for success as it would be in God's eyes. So maybe there's some Amalekites God's calling you to defeat through Christ. If so, don't assume that it's only going to affect you. It may very well ricochet down through the line. And the, the battles that God allows you to win may very well prevent the future, uh, those who are born of, of your house, from fighting the same battles. And so it's very important that we consider what we do. Amen. Now, after what might be considered a slight detour last week, let's start digging back into the text here. And let's look at verse 1. It says, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. So this verse begins with after these things. This would be after the events at the close of chapter 2. <laughs> Amen. You don't need a degree to do this. After what <laughs> Remember, at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai had a seat in the king's gate. He had a a position of some status. And he foiled a plan by by two of the king's chamberlains who got so mad at the king that they wanted to kill him. And when this came to Mordecai's ears, he let Esther, the new queen, his niece, let her know that there was this planned assassination attempt against Ahasuerus, and she takes it to the king, and she makes sure that the king knows, hey, Mordecai is the one who brought this to our attention. Once the king discovered this was all true, he had Big Than, (laughs) Big Than and and Teresh hanged on a tree, which probably means they were impaled on a stake. And the record of this event, this event was recorded in the Chronicles of the Medes and the Persians, and nothing was done for Mordecai except an honorable mention. 
Here a man saves the king's life and nothing's done for him. That seems a little backwards to me. I mean, one good deed maybe, you know, you think would deserve recognition from the king here. But remember, this is all part of God's providence. This, is, this reward is being held back because God has a, a plan when we get to chapter 6, and we're going to see all that play out. But at the beginning of chapter 3, there's been no recognition for what Mordecai had done for the king. And whether he anticipated something or not, we're really just left to conjecture, but I read something like that, and I know it would probably creep into my mind. You know, maybe he at least excuse my taxes for a month, you know. I don't know. I, and, and it was customary, so I would think that it maybe entered his mind at least. And, and I think he deserves something more than just an entry here at the end um, into the book of the Chronicles there at the end of chapter 2. Especially since the Bible makes a point of telling us that Esther made a special point of letting the king know, hey, Mordecai is the one who did this. He's the whistleblower. And yet nothing's done for him. Now, I don't know if he was disappointed or not at being passed over for a promotion or some kind of recognition, but I find it interesting, said all that to say, I find it interesting that chapter 3 begins by telling us Haman got promoted. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman. I don't know if you've ever been passed over for a promotion. It's not something you rush home and tell your wife, you know, when she asks, how was your day? You won't believe this. I had a great day. I got passed over for a promotion today. I mean, we're not excited about these things. Maybe you've been passed over. Uh, you know, maybe you've worked hard. You checked all the right boxes. You went to all the training classes. You went on the, the right business trips. And you ended the year with strong numbers. And you made your boss look good. And you did everything right. And all you got out of it was an honorable mention. After all the effort, all you ended up with was some resume builder statements. EPR bullets for you military folks. Then to make matters worse, worse, perhaps you had to watch as somebody of a questionable character is promoted ahead of you. Maybe didn't work as hard. Whatever the case. Maybe Mordecai I had the same kind of feelings. If he was disappointed... If he only knew how God was going to use this down the road to God's advantage, to Mordecai's advantage, to the Jews' advantage, then he would have been content with how things played out. And my point is this. We often waste our efforts trying to analyze everything in the moment in which they are occurring. Something bad happens, and, and immediately we start trying to seek for answers. And I'm not saying it, it's wrong to seek for answers, but what I am saying is we want answers right now. And we want to know, okay, God, what is it you're doing? Why didn't I get this recognition? Why didn't I get this promotion? Whatever the circumstance. But the fact is you're probably not going to get a satisfactory uh, answer to your question until after the fact sometime down the road. When you can look back over time, and see what it was God was doing in your life. And so I would just tell you, don't be disgruntled now. But wait until the events can be viewed over the course of time. And then you can see how God was leading and working. Because our God sees a bigger picture. Remember, He knows the end from the beginning. 
I remember the first time I applied to become an officer, I was rejected. That's a good feeling. And I'm not bragging, but I was qualified. I mean, I was. I'd already been over 10 years in the career field I was applying for. I, I'm the man, you know. <laughs> Impeccable record. Um, yeah. <laughs> but for reasons beyond me, God said no at the time. Well, a couple years later, I applied again. I don't even remember why. Somebody encouraged me to do it. I wasn't even that motivated to do it. And um, I only had 10 days to get it done. If you know anything about the process, that's, that's a miracle in of itself. And um, second time around, I... I was selected. I couldn't give you an answer when I was going through why God would say no, but I can tell you now, looking back over the course of time, I know how God was working, and I know how He was leading, and I know what He was up to. He was preparing me for something far greater, and he, I had to wait for His perfect timing. And so sometimes you can't figure it out when you're going through the moment. It's too painful. There's too much questions. There's a lot going on. You have to wait till time passes, and then you start to understand what it is God is doing. And, and I can now tell you, I have a testimony now that I can tell you, God's timing is always best. Just learn to trust Him. Learn to trust how He's working in your life. He knows how to lead His children along. Back to our text, we see that it is Haman who is promoted. And I'm wondering, are we told this because Mordecai deserved to be promoted? I don't know. And we may never know. But Haman is promoted to second in command in the empire. He's what we may call the prime minister of Persia. And it may not have seemed fair to Mordecai or even those who were familiar with the situation. But God's providence is going to be at work here. And that's the theme of our study, God's providence. And God is going to use this oversight, right? This accidental oversight, quote unquote, of not being rewarded down the road God's going to use this event to preserve Judah alive. Look at verses 2 through 4. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king is so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants which were in the king's gate said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So due to Haman's new position, the king has now commanded all the servants, when Haman comes by, have to bow down and reverence Haman as he passes their way. But we read at the end of verse 2 that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Well, the king's servants naturally want to know, hey man, what's up? Hey man. The king's servants want to know what's up. Why aren't you bowing like you've been commanded to do? And Mordecai stands his ground. I'm not bowing. He doesn't hearken to them, and they want to know if his matter is going to stand, which is just a way of saying, hey, we want to know whether or not Haman's going to agree that your special circumstance of being a Jew is what's keeping you from bowing down and, and that he's going to be okay with that. Now, commentators have speculated at length as to why Mordecai refused to bow and to reverence because as verse 4 says, they want to know, is this going to stand? And so commentators here, they're okay, why didn't Haman bow? And there's, there's so many reasons. I'm, I'm going to give you these quickly. Um, some have supposed that Mordecai felt, hey, I'm the one that deserved the promotion. I'm not bowing to you. 
that he's just acting like a punk. You know, he's, he's sulking. Well, I deserved it. According to verse 7, we are now in the 12th year of the king's reign. So, over four years has passed since chapter 2. That's a long time to be bitter. That's a long time to hold a grudge, if, if that's the reason. And I thought, surely no man can be angry that long. And then I remembered, no, there's people outside of church for over 20 years because of what somebody did to them. Hey, people know how to hold grudges. Well, I'll never talk to them again. Some say it was because Mordecai had a lack of respect for the character of Haman. And therefore, why should a wicked and vile man be reverenced? Psalm 15 speaks of the man who walks uprightly, works righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. And it says that that man will contemn a vile person and will honor those who fear the Lord. Some say it was because Haman was an Amalekite, Mordecai was um, a Jew, and, and knowing the history between those two all the way back to Exodus 17, that Mordecai here is refusing to honor one from among a people that God said, remember what the Amalekites did unto you back there in Deuteronomy 25, 17. Some suggest Mordecai refuses to bow because he's against the system. <laughs> he's an anarchist. I don't think that this is a case of him being against the system. I mean, if he wanted to try to overthrow the system, then why did he turn in the two that were going to kill the king? So that, that to me doesn't make sense. Some say it was because God prohibited Israelites from bowing before other men. But that's not true scripturally. God never took offense at giving reverence to people in positions of civil authority. 1 Samuel 24, 8, David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And we read in 1 Kings, 1, uh, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 16, And Bathsheba bowed and did obeisance unto the king. The only reason which seems to make sense to me so far is that the reverence that they're requiring of people to give to Haman, that it goes beyond a, a civil reverence and begins to enter the realm of divine adoration. That's the best that... Uh, and that makes the most sense to me scripturally. Um, and of course, God did forbid that. There, there's one God, right? And He said, you bow before me and me only. Um, when it comes to a deity. Now, the Hebrew word for reverence here in verse 2 is shaka, which is a strong indication that this is going beyond just the bowing that we read first, that this is starting to get into, I don't just want you to bow, I want you to worship this man, and it gives that idea. Although this word isn't used that way exclusively throughout the Old Testament, if we go by the law of first mention, the first time it is used is worship. In Genesis 18, the Lord appeared unto Abraham, and uh, he's sitting in the door of his tent. He lifts up his eyes. Three men, men are, are standing by him, and he runs out to meet them. And the Bible says he bowed himself toward the ground. Shaka. And he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. So that seems to be kind of the implication here that what King Ahasuerus is demanding of his servants, the king's servants, is that they actually worship Haman. 
Now, I've stated in previous messages that when Mordecai concealed his identity and commanded Esther to do the same by not letting everybody know they were Jewish, that he was also concealing his religion. Right? Everybody with me? And so that, that was a very big deal. They were not only keeping their, their nationality a secret, but in essence, they're keeping their religion a secret. And that's what people do outside of the will of God. But now, all of a sudden, Mordecai, he's, he's made known his identity. And it would appear that his lack of obedience to the king's uh, servant here, Haman, to, to Haman, is religious in nature. And I base this off of what we read in verse 8 of Esther chapter 3. When Haman explains to Ahasuerus, there's people in your empire, they don't have the same laws as us and they don't act the same way. And we don't really need them among us. (laughs) There was a similar observation made in Daniel while the Jews were under Babylonian captivity. Remember when the statue was made and Nebuchadnezzar wanted everybody to bow down that... Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego didn't bow down. Um, this is what was said to the king. O king, these men have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And that verse begins with, there are certain Jews. And so the same kind of thing was happening in Babylon. I, I think maybe happening here. You'll have to decide for yourself Mordecai's reasoning Um, for not bowing, but i got to tell you, if if it is religious in nature, I'm I'm confused and I'm baffled as to why all of a sudden. Why all of a sudden is Mordecai now revealing who he is? Here's a man that's living in a pagan land. He's free to go back to the promised land. He's outside of the will of God, is what I'm saying. He's already been guilty of concealing his nationality and therefore his religion. But now he apparently recognizes God and he shows enough gumption here to not bow before Haman. That puzzles me. I mean, if he had this kind of reverence for God now, when it can cost him his position and his life, then why didn't he return to the homeland? Why isn't he helping rebuild the temple and the, the city? Can you follow where I'm, where, my thinking here? I, why all of a sudden is, is he willing to admit he's a Jew? And all I conclude, can conclude is people act awkwardly when they're out of the will of God. And, and disgracefully, I came to this conclusion because I, God reminded me of my own past. I can remember while stationed at my first duty assignment, not really living for God at all. I wasn't faithful to God's Word. Uh, I wasn't going to church. But if somebody questioned the existence of God or the authority of God, I would all of a sudden stand for God. You understand what I'm saying? I can see now how ridiculous and how hypocritical that is. What kind of example is it if a child of God will stand for God but will not live for God? What does that say to the world? It's like we're content to join hands with the world and the pagans around us 
but only up to a certain point. And, and somehow we think God is pleased with that sacrifice. You've seen my conviction, Lord. I can tell you God is not pleased. Because God has commanded that His people come out from among them and be separate. When people do not separate while they are simultaneously trying to stand for God at times that they deem more necessary than at other times, then really we are demonstrating how weak our faith in God is. And we're telling the world that we believe in God, but God isn't important enough to us to wholly follow Him at all times. We're saying that our God is not worthy of full devotion. That our God is not really worthy of our worship. And in so doing, we become no different than the people over there in Malachi who were wearying and robbing God by not completely obeying what God said to do. But then they wanted to act like they were doing God's service. And God says, you have wearied me with your words. Well, all of a sudden, Mordecai, he's now willing to put his life on the line for God. Why not beforehand? So I'm not one who's fully celebrating his admittance here like many will teach. I'm thankful for it. But Mordecai, where you been, man? What has taken you so long to make a stand for God? And then I remembered me. And I can now ask the question of me 27 years ago. What took you so long to make a stand for God? What took you so long to just go ahead and settle it in your heart that I'm going to live for God? What took me so long to be in the will of God? What took me so long to get my heart right with God? And and listen, there's probably somebody here tonight and you're going through the same struggle. And and you're just not willing to sell out for God. Moses said to Israel in the place of God in Deuteronomy 30 verses 19 and 20, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. That both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey His voice and that thou mayest cleave unto him. For he is thy life in the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord thy God swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. And then in the next generation, Joshua, he stands before the people in Joshua twenty four fifteen, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose, land, in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Later, Elijah will ask the people in 1 Kings 18.21, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow Him. And if Baal be God, follow Him. Make up your mind. Jesus said, I'd rather you be hot or cold. Because when you're lukewarm, I just want to spew you out of my mouth. Now understand that Mordecai, he could not be a faithful Jew 
and a compliant citizen of Persia on this matter. It would be an impossibility. And eventually these two ideologies are going to clash. And perhaps that's why he was so slow to admit that he was a Jew. He knew it was going to cost. He knew he was going to have a battle on his hands. And I think many times we just kind of sit back in the shadows because we don't want to deal with it. Because we know it's going to rock the boat. We know it's going to cause problems. But now that his identity has been revealed, he's got a decision to make. Do I, con- do I continue with the decision I made or do I compromise? He's at a tipping point because it's been made known. And the same is true for you and I today. The day appears to be rapidly approaching in America when we won't be able to be a faithful Christian and be fully compliant American citizens. In some ways, it's already here. Am I the only one tuned in? The laws of our land are becoming increasingly more anti-Christian. I just read an article today, some school district in Fort Worth, Texas, they got to take the Bible out of the school. It's too offensive. It's too offensive to the transgender movement. We're becoming more anti-Christian and our faith in God is heading for a clash with the ideologies in our land. And I think God brings every one of us to a decision point and multiple decision points in our life where we have to decide if we are going to continue to conceal our Christianity or continue to compromise or if we're just going to finally settle it in our hearts that we're going to stand and live for God. I can remember those times in my life. So where does your allegiance ultimately lie? And I want to tell you, I'm a red-blooded American through and through. And I will stand for this country as she was founded. And that's the key. But I, I have to realize, when all is said and done, I am just sojourning. I am a pilgrim. I am a stranger. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I have a heavenly citizenship, and that's where my first allegiance must lie. And sometimes this, sometimes this will require a transgression against the king's commandment. Acts 4, 19 and 20, But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Then in the next chapter, Acts 5.29, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. So are there any here who are compromising? Outside of church, you're concealing your faith. Maybe God's brought you to a decision point. What is your decision going to be? Will you finally admit you're a child of God? Or will you continue to try to live in the shadows of a pagan land and hope nobody ever discovers because it's just going to cause too much of an inconvenience? I I can tell you as somebody who has been there in what I'm preaching tonight, don't live your life with regret that you've wasted years of your life 
not being sold out for God. Stop waffling back and forth. Well, you make a stand when, when somebody questions God. You, you don't make a stand when... Um, make up your mind. Decide to sell out for God. And then be at peace that it's going to anger the world around you, which we see in our text. I'm not saying we've got to be ugly and we've got to purposely beat people upside the head. But if you'll live your life godly, you will suffer persecution. So who do you want to please more? God or man? Let's pray.